0: I just met Winnie today, but I think we're going to be friends now. That's part of the reason I love this podcast. I you guys will love it. She's one of the most experienced retail executives in the world, and she has a lot to learn from. Remember, if you do enjoy the episode today, be a friend, tell a friend. That's the best way you can help. Thanks, guys. Explore the minds and marketing strategies behind today's winning brands and businesses. Tap into the power of the creator economy with Earned by Creator IQ. Here's Connor Begley. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Earned. Today, I've got the CEO of Forever Twenty One, Winnie Park, on the show. Welcome to the show, Winnie. Thank you so much, Connor. I'm
1: excited to be here,
0: and I am excited to have you. Let me brag about you for a second, right? So, um, to go way back in Winnie's background: undergrad at Princeton, MBA at Northwestern, then went McKinsey consulting to Levi's. Levi's to the duty free store, where you were the EVP there of marketing, which, you know, it's a 4,000 plus person company, then CEO at Paper Source in your first CEO role, now CEO at Forever 21, and hold board roles at both Express and Dollar Tree. So that's a lot of experience to draw from. I'm excited.
1: I hope I can part some words of wisdom or at least be super authentic in terms of what I share with you.
0: Totally. So let's talk retail. I was at the Business of Fashion Voices Summit. So I'm talking to different retailers, brands, et cetera. And the word of the day was like, retail's back, right? Retail's back in a real meaningful way. And obviously for you, I think across all your companies, we've added up the numbers, 70,000 employees and 10,000 doors in your history. So you're gonna know it pretty well. Is that what you're seeing? in terms of retail are you seeing it surge back in a meaningful way and how does that interplay with obviously everybody's invested in digital really heavily over the last couple of years
1: absolutely i think retail is back and i've seen it go up and go down and coming out of the pandemic the thing that was really compelling is the fact that i think it just reminded customers and consumers that they actually like the physical act of shopping in retail stores And there's something about the touch and feel aspect of shopping in stores and the pleasure that it can give you that you are reminded of when you're denied that piece of it. And then rediscovering that it's actually pretty relevant. It's a relevant way to actually spend your time. It's a relevant way to connect with a visceral experience, which is touching and feeling product. Um, I remember missing simple things like when you wear a mask, not being able to smell a candle. So there's something about that that really does bring you a small pleasure in life that I think people really got back into. I also think being with a brand that really caters to Gen Z, Gen Z actually like to be in physical environments and like to shop. They like to try things on. They're very knowledgeable about the touch and feel of product. Quality, fabrications. And so I think all of that really lends itself well to being in a physical space and experience it again.
0: Yeah. The analogy I always really liked, or the discussion was the two big things that happened in the pandemic, biggest changes in terms of human behavior were work from home. And then, like, you're doing all your shopping online, right? So it's online shopping and working from home remotely. And I think working remotely has stuck, right? Or at least partially remotely has stuck for a lot of organizations. And it's like, I'm in my house all day. The last thing I want to do is sit at my desk and like shop online. I want to take my kids, get out of the house, go do something physical, like, and shopping is one of those things. And so uh, it's got to be fun to have that really kind of surge back.
1: I totally agree with you. I think that we all felt so pent up. And a lot of folks are back with a hybrid schedule. You still have that ability to have a little more flex time than they used to. What we're actually seeing is that people are actually coming back like the pre-pandemic on the weekends. And so this is becoming a little bit of entertainment. And I think retail in its best form is a bit of entertainment. It is bringing your kids out to do something, to see something. And I think, again, that that piece is all about like simple pleasures And so the ability to actually put something down and interact with the physical world and physical people almost feels like a treat.
0: And I actually hadn't thought about it from a Gen Z perspective, but, you know, they were also doing remote classes for a couple of years, right?
1: Absolutely. My daughter started her high school freshman year uh, during a pandemic. And so, you know, this whole phenomenon of kids like literally rolling out of bed and logging on and they had never used Zoom before. And, you know, it really halted any type of social development in a weird way. Totally. so everyone just looked forward to those moments where they could actually convene. And again, there's something about that old school notion of like going to a mall to convene that feels new school.
0: I actually haven't talked about the pandemic a bit. So I want to talk about that a little bit more because the other thing that happened, right, is go back 2020, that is a very unique time in history in terms of the disruption that occurred to business models. And obviously you were the CEO of a retail-led brand. You are on the board of very large retailers. Those are like tough times. There's reductions in force. There's all these kinds of things. What were your learnings come out of that? Because obviously that had to shape you quite a bit as a leader, I'd imagine.
1: Absolutely. So. Absolutely. It was a super tough time. And I think some of the things that I learned on that journey is to... Focus on what you can control. Really difficult to do. And I would say that that begins and ends with you. You can control yourself as a leader and how you show up. And so for me, I really double down on the practice of conscious leadership, which is something that I practice like yoga. I'm not great at yoga, and I'm still learning on the consciousness front. But the, the thought process behind conscious leadership is locate yourself are you above the line? Or are you below the line? And are you getting engaged in drama in a way that you shouldn't? Is your ego being triggered? And I would say during the pandemic, I feel like it was a lot of CEOs talked about it as managing, it's like being a wartime CEO, right? Yep, War yep. in general. And so being conscious of like how much you influence and impact the troops is so critical how you show up on every single Zoom, how you deal with adversity. And honestly, in many cases, you definitely want to panic and you can't. And so that's one of the key lessons I learned. The second thing is you got to make decisions swiftly. I do think that in those moments, and you know what? The normal cadence of retail business, you have a little more time to think and plan. When all those plans go out the window, You have to be in a mode where you're making decisions and you are actually literally leading from the front. He didn't have time for analysis paralysis. It was from one day to the next, oh, we have to close all of our stores. What are we going to do with the associates? How do we ensure that they can get by? How do we really get into the mode of communicating in an appropriate fashion? So making decisions quickly and swiftly And balancing the analytical piece with the gut instinct of what's right was critical. And I would say the last piece I learned is over-communicate. And this is something that I think, as I always say, that when you start your career, you are valued for what you can do. At the second stage, as a manager, you're really valued for what you know because you've done it so often. At the last stage of your career, it's about the who you are and the who you are during a crisis like the pandemic, people lean on that in communicating constantly, communicating about the state of the state. When do we go back to the office? When do we go back to stores? What are the implications of this? And it became a critical way for me to keep people together. It was really around let's communicate constantly, even if the news is tough.
0: Well, both tough and unexpected, right? Different states have different plans. Yes. Different countries have different plans. Plans change. There's lack of visibility. There isn't constant communication from other parties. Like it is, it just sounds like a really wild and difficult time.
1: It did feel like wartime because you couldn't fully anticipate what the enemy was going to do. And the enemy was a virus, And so, you know, regulatory was changing constantly and just the more basic things like human fear and what would happen and what triggers human fear and the sense of safety. So it was a tough time. And I would say that I was lucky enough to have a group of peers, a group of CEOs who got together almost weekly to support each other and compare notes. And we went from the real tactical, like, what are you guys going to do about rents at X, Y, Z? to really much more of the strategic in terms of what does this say about business models in the future? And we all saw our e-com businesses just absolutely rise to the top and questions around, will that continue afterwards? And what's the right balance as you look at your omni-channel model?
0: I think a mistake that you're seeing a lot of the tech companies go through right now, right? Which is, and you've seen it with Google and Facebook and these others where they're going through layoffs. But I think The reality is that they went through very large hiring sprees during the pandemic, right? They hired like this e-com trend was going to continue at the pace that it did, and it didn't. And so, yes, they laid off 10,000, but they also hired 70,000. So it was just so tough to predict. I'd actually be curious then, so you went through this, we were kind of this balanced digital, physical retail model, then it's like everything has to be digital. And now it's like, oh, wait, let's get back to this more kind of balanced model how do those two interact in the best way possible, right? This digital world and this physical world, because people are going into the store and using their phone to look up products while they're in the store, or they're watching a TikTok video at home and that inspires them to go and shop, right? Like, how do you think about that kind of omni-channel experience in its most effective form?
1: Well, you know, I think that the old definition of omnichannel was simple things like buy in line and pick up in store. It was how we make it super convenient, honestly, to be competitive with customer first organizations like Amazon that could deliver like that, right? Yep. And I think the definition has really evolved. And for me, omnichannel has always been around the customer and meeting them where they are. So the brilliance of Amazon is actually when you boil it down, it comes down to convenience that's really what they offer. And it's convenience of search, it's convenience of getting the product quickly, et cetera. And time is one of those big enemies of any customer. I would say that what we have evolved to from that point to where we are today from a nominee channel perspective is it's not just time, it's about relevance. And here is where I think we need to lean in to really meet customers where they are. Why is TikTok such an effective vehicle for getting people to engage with the brand or product? Because you are actually meeting them where they are. TikTok is a form of entertainment. There was a recent study that said that it's the first time that like, honestly, that everything's shifted in terms of content, what we consume and what is actually created not by big media companies, but by individuals, is more and more of our mind space, right? Because it's a form of entertainment. And so meeting a customer where they are is, how do you entertain them? How do you entertain them via social media and TikTok? How do you become part of the metaverse? Our youngest customers are on Roblox. And Forever 21 made a conscious effort to actually be part of Roblox. We don't actually monetize our engagements there. But we get to be part of Shop City and engage with them where they are. Now, that engagement and that form of entertainment via this device, then how do you connect the dots back to what they want to engage with you on, both online and in stores? How do you make that journey as seamless as possible? With Rihanna and the Super Bowl, I'm seeing red everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if that's the case, right? And then on TikTok, a lot of creators are talking about the color red. And then how do you actually ensure that that's what shows up in app, what shows up online? How do you make sure that the experience in store prioritizes that? So that kind of 360 experience and meeting customers where they are, that's how Omnichannel has changed, I believe. And I think, you know, it's so interesting because in the old days – It was inconvenient to drive to the store. Today, we see it as a small luxury. So for me, I look at our stores and our footprints as, how do we engage? Not just how do we exchange or have a place where we just do commerce. I exchange these goods for your cash. I'd much rather they walk in and spend time and dwell. And for us, we are trying to evolve ourselves from being a pure retailer to an actual brand and the brand lifestyle that we're about is for fashion fanatics. And they don't see fashion as just something you put on. It's actually a form of self-expression. So how to create that experience both in-store, in app and online so that we're really showing how people use fashion to self-express. I always call it the yellow thread because our color is yellow, but how do you weave that yellow thread between social app online all the way through to stores and make it authentic and meet customers where they are instead of shoving content down their face.
0: Yeah. That sounds like a difficult problem because again, like you said, historically you had a lot more time to plan in retail, right? You plan seasons out and now it's like, well, everything in the store has to be read, right? Like not that that's what you're doing, but like that's that's how fast you have to operate. Absolutely.
1: It is instantaneous. And For me, I think that's part of what's so fun about this. Honestly, it's great to be with Forever 21 because we're still super fast at how we deliver fashion. And so trend is critically important. So I would say the superpower for anyone at Forever 21 should be lean into cultural zeitgeist and trend. And today, it's not just something that walks down the runway. It can be music. It can be art. It can be film. It could be honestly the super bowl and how do you lean into that cultural zeitgeist and what's happening you know it's great for anyone who is interested in almost being an ethnographer you know and really understand yeah. culture
0: yeah we interviewed the ceo of an agency called movers and shakers They're like the fastest growing agency in the country according to Adweek, and they very much focus on tiktok and there are like 150 people now i think i think he said they had It was like 12 or 15 people that were literally basically cultural ethnographers, right? Like they were there to study culture, know what was happening today. It was literally their job to just be on TikTok, be on these channels to know what was happening.
1: And you know what? I think, you know, this is where I really lean on my daughter because truthfully, she has more time than me. And and he's never known anything more than social, honestly. And she's known nothing more than this device. Like the phone has been her best friend from the time she was very young. Yep. So be it Snapchat. She is on Twitter just a tiny little bit. Facebook is just not relevant for her. But man, TikTok has gone from being a source of entertainment to honestly, now we're making food off of TikTok. And they don't really share a recipe, but we try. But there's something to that notion of the youngest generation, they have lived in a social universe, and that is where culture is happening for them and where they express. And so I have a lot of respect for the fact that this company has decided we need to be on there and we need cultural ethnographers really capturing what's happening I was just remarking to someone, I said, you know, in the old days with market research, you needed a sample size that was like big enough and statistically relevant. Today, I think the segment of one is really relevant because of social media. Everyone's kind of onto the same things. So if you have your segment of one and you can lean in on your kid and say, hey, what are you watching? What's happening? (laughs) It works. It totally Totally.
0: totally." Well, let's talk about social. I have one more question about retail, but let's talk about social while we're on that topic. So I think when we look at our rankings in terms of fast fashion, influencers are dominating the category. Right. And I know you guys are more than just fast fashion, but kind of putting you in that bucket for a minute. I mean, if you look at Fashion Nova, Shein, Boohoo, Pretty Little Thing, right? As well as, I mean, I think even H&M and Zara have really stepped up their game in the last couple of years. Nice. Um, I mean, these are brands are like outperforming Nike in terms of coverage right so what is the plan to accelerate influencers creators as part of the core growth for forever 21
1: that i would argue is the beginning of the end of what great marketing looks like for us and when i joined we launched a concerted strategy around influencers that basically for me anything we do number 1 we need to tap influencers who are authentically part of the brand they love and they get the brand. And it's not about pay per your performance. It's really around, do we have a genuine connection? Because I think that's what shines. The second piece is let's have a pantheon of influencers at multiple levels, micro all the way up to the biggest names. And again, they need to authentically connect to what story we want to engage on. It's not just stuff. We're not just trying to sell stuff. For instance, we're launching our festival collection, and we're always a resource for what are you going to wear on Friday night when you go out? What are you going to wear when you go to Lollapalooza? Like, we are that resource. And so festival has always been part of our offering, but now we're calling it out, and we're going to activate festival with influencers on multiple levels. Folks who are in music, folks who actually run festivals all the way through to just culturally relevant moments like Y2K and tapping an influencer who, for us, feels both retro and forward-looking Gen Z and blends the two on the Y2K front. But we want to really, honestly, engage and co-create with our influencers, not just pay to have them sit in front of the camera with us or to do something on social. So that becomes the harder part of this, is number one, figuring out who we want to tap. And then secondly, how do we co-create? Go that next step. Now, the piece that I really love is that, again, I'm gonna go back to the metaverse and co-creation. We entered that as really just a way for us to engage with young customers and be where they are already and where they're engaging. But it is amazing, the creativity and the creations that come out of Shop City. And we had a creator create a forever beanie that has sold a million units in the metaverse. And we decided if it's selling a million units, (laughs) maybe people want to twin with it. Let's offer the in real life version of it, which we just launched.
0: That is fascinating. I (laughs) love that
1: thing. And we have a group of creators who are like, let's personalize the forever beanie and create our own version of the beanie that goes with our avatars. And I was just looking at some of the creations. It's amazing. And for me, that becomes true influences. How do you do something truly together as opposed to it's, you know, my daughter will be the first to tell me that's a sponsored ad. That person got a sponsor. You can tell. Yeah, it's just like genuine, it's not authentic. So that becomes the step that's a little harder is how do you make it genuine and authentic and how do you really create something together?
0: Well, I think that's what actually encourages people to participate as well, right? When they feel seen or heard, it's like, oh, wow, I created this beanie on roadblocks. Now they're launching it. And it's like, holy shit, like I affected the world, right? I made a change and they heard me and they saw me, right? And I think it's just such a special experience and it builds on itself.
1: Exactly. A million people have bought this beanie in the metaverse. I mean, that is crazy. It's like, well, then we should create it. Like we should bake the real life version. That's the funnest part of what's next, I think, in terms of creators is in the 90s and the 2000s, brands could tell you how to look and feel. And you said something really critical, Connor. You said it's about being seen. And I do think that more than ever, and especially with Gen Z, they want to be seen, heard. And that is where the world is headed. And again, going back to Forever 21, we see ourselves as being that place where you get to self-express. We don't tell you what you are or how to look, but we give you all the tools to self-express. And I would say that, again, with my daughter and her generation, she wakes up Y2K fashion. She might have a goth moment in the middle of the day. And then at the end of the day, she might go full on country like, but that's She's not she's not going to have a brand teller. You need to look this way, which I think is kind of remarkable.
0: Yeah, no, it's fascinating. We're right by uh, middle school. We share a fence at the middle school. And so, you know, I see preteens frequently or early teens. And uh, I'm like, I mean, I guess I don't get it anymore. Like, <laughs> I'm clearly what? not part of this tribe. I am not <laughs> part of this group.
1: Yes. And you know what? They're a tribe of one and they're proud of it. Cause I would say when I grew up, you would see kids who kind of dressed alike and there were all these clicks. And today they're like, yeah, I just, I'm vibing on purple. So it's going to be head to toe, including my hair. And that's great. And tomorrow it might be green.
0: I want to go back to retail just for a second and then we'll be done with retail after that. Cause I think that you're just such a wealth of knowledge there. Thinking outside of kind of the omni-channel digital integration kind of co-creation process, just nuts and bolts running a hundred stores, a thousand stores. What does it take to run those? What are the core? Because I just don't know, right? Like I've never run that. I'm really curious because you have. What do you think are the keys to actually doing that really, really well? And we'll say in a relatively stable environment, right? Assuming we're not in the middle of the pandemic.
1: In every organization that I've been with, I would say I'm a firm believer in inverting the pyramid where the CEO is not at the top, the customer's at the top and the CEO at the bottom. Anyone closest to the customer is closer to our boss, which is the customer.
0: There's the Walmart quote, right? Where he says, there's only one boss and it's a customer and he can fire everybody from the CEO on down. Yeah,
1: absolutely. That is the truest thing. And With that, if you invert the pyramid, your store and your fleet and your associates are closer to the boss than you are. And so I think the first principle of retail is, number one, is really listen to the associates. They are closer to what's happening. They understand for us, getting product feedback from the associates in terms of what are customers looking at, what feedback are they giving you, even from fit to styling, et cetera, what do they need more of, getting that feedback and listening in a very concerted way as to how you can react is very important. The second piece of that is make sure you make life easy for them. I started my life in retail as a sales associate on the floor at Banana Republic on Nassau Street, which was one of two retailers for apparel at Princeton. And I was still in college and I was in there all the time because I'm a fashion nut. And the manager said to me, do you want to come work here? I'll give you a discount. I was like, yeah, let's do that. But I was scared to death, Connor, my first day of work. And I was like, oh my gosh, people are asking me for things. I have to know the product. And I almost felt like an actor on the stage. Like I was a representative of this brand, you know? And they put me in the front as a greeter, I remember, and thinking, oh gosh, how do I make my greeting compelling? But you know, all an associate is asked to do, which is to interact with the customer, serve the customer, make sure there's product on the floor, clean up dressing rooms, ring, do inventory in the back. There's a lot. And so for me, it is the best retailers understand what the associates need and how do you make life easy for them? Because their most critical job is actually engaging with the customer. And if you can make that easy, then you have failed. The other piece around retail that I think is critically important is connectivity at all levels. So for us, because we're a fashion trend brand, we need to deliver relevant fashion trends every two weeks, which means that we need to change out product and the way we look and feel every two weeks. Online, it's easy. It's much more dynamic. Offline, you have got to physically move product from place to place. You've got to... Rest mannequins. You've got to do all sorts of things. And so that communication up and down and really, really good guidance from corporate back to the stores is critical. And so I always say retail is like playing a team sport. It is probably one of the biggest team sports. And I keep telling my teams, this is not a relay race where you get to pass off the baton. We're actually all in it together. Like think of football. We are on the field together and every player on the field has a role. And so in communication with those players as they're running a play, critical. And so for me, that becomes the keys to the kingdom in terms of really, really good execution. Know who's boss, the customer. Make sure the associates, make sure their lives are easy and their jobs are easy as possible and make sure that the communication flows up and down and be in service of the field and the fleet.
0: I love that. And I think, I mean, even you get down to just simple things like how much product should there be of each type of product every two weeks, right? Like how do you predict demand in a world that's as dynamic as, you know, the one we live in today from a social media and other perspective.
1: And that is one of the tougher parts of retail is the predictability of demand because the inventory then that gets caught in our case in 420 plus locations. And so there's so much more science, I should say, to what we do today than there ever was in the past.
0: I want to kind of transition to leadership a little bit. And I think one of the phenomenons, I think you're in a particularly interesting position to kind of comment on is this phenomenon of the glass cliff, which at least the way it's described is that organizations that are struggling are much more likely to hire women into CEO positions, right? And what this does functionally is it makes it much more difficult on women because it's much harder to take a company that's having a tough time and turn it around than it is to have a company and keep it going. And I think particularly given what you've gone through the last couple of years, there's been disruptions, there's bankruptcies or worries about bankruptcies, all this kind of stuff. I'd love to hear your perspective on that. And then I think secondarily, you know, I know that you take mentorship pretty seriously, and supporting other women pretty seriously. So what do you think are the ways that we can kind of help get more women into these leadership roles?
1: Yes. So Connor, I've never heard of the glass cliff. And so I really appreciate you bringing that to my attention and the phenomenon. And I would say that there is believability to it from one perspective, which is, I think women CEOs make great candidates for leaders in tough times because I think they are incredibly resilient and patient. I also think they're willing to take risks. And when you flip the paradigm and actually say, let's get a woman in there because she's the only one who could take the job, we'll take the job, is one way to look at the situation. The other way to look at the situation is, you know what, the one who's raising their hand to say, let me do this, is the woman. Because there is greater, I would say, reserves of resilience, grit, patience, and risk-taking. Maybe the other gender is less likely to take those types of risks. That's the way that you know you might want to flip the paradigm and think about it. Yeah. Um, my personal experience is I walked into my first CEO role for a company that was flying And pandemic really had a major hit on us. And we had to make the decision along with our private equity backers, as well as our creditors to file for chapter 11 protection. And that was a concerted decision to ensure that the brand would survive and to restructure the debt that often comes with private equity. But it was interesting because I was not in a position of taking a turnaround. I was in a position of, Pandemic, and then having to find a path forward. And I would say that that happened to my gender as well as the other gender during that period. And it wasn't easy, but it is interesting because that's not the situation I found myself in. But I can see how women would rise to the occasion of, I'm going to take the risk, I'm going to take this turnaround, and I think I can make it happen. So, secondarily, on the question of mentoring, I have been so lucky. And I've been blessed to have had great mentors who are both female and male. And I think the key to mentorship is actually to be open to it. And good mentorship in my past has been telling me the stuff I don't wanna hear. There was a point in my career where I really valued being perfect. I thought that was my way to be successful. And I really didn't wanna look like anything but perfect. And for my mentor to tell me, Here's some things you may want to work on, including you're always perfect. And thus, your colleagues who are at the same level of you, the presidents, yours divisions, don't actually want to work with you. You don't show your humanity, your weakness, your vulnerability. And sometimes those things, and just the simple act of saying, I don't know, I need help, makes people rush in and want to make you successful and so i've gotten really tough advice but i at first i resisted it to be honest cuz i'm like oh no i'm perfect and then i was like <laughs> this imperfect this is so silly why am i holding on to this for dear
0: yeah.
1: he's telling me i can be successful and be imperfect that should free me you know and then I really started leaning into it and asking for feedback all the time. But real good mentors hit you at the gut and you have to be ready for that. They're not there to be your cheer squad and tell you how great you are. And so I would say signing up to be mentored, you have to really get vulnerable and be open to that if it's going to be a value to you. And I would say seeking mentorship is finding people that you find are, you know, sometimes it's someone you look up to. Oftentimes it's for me, it's someone that not only do I look up to, but I know will give me sound advice and be objective. And it's not part of the cheer squad, but it's part of the, here's some things you need to work on and able to really provide great feedback. For me, on the flip side, mentoring is critical to, I would say, my kind of leadership platform. And my mantra with my teams is, I really don't need another manager in the house. I need leaders. We need heat-seeking missiles. I don't need to program longitude and latitude for great people. They should be seeking the heat and going after things, right? So how do we develop that? How do we develop that skill? Great mentorship. And like I said, oftentimes you get great training at work by doing the job, on the job. You go from the, I'm being rewarded for what I can do to what I know. It's the who you are that needs the greatest mentorship. It's the softer skills. It's the leadership skills, which is cultivating followership, being compelling, the art of influence, but also letting go. And letting go means not only do you drive accountability, accountability on the flip side is, did that work? How'd you do? Did we make the numbers? What's the learning there? How are we going to course that? And it's a totally. coach-player relationship that's so critical.
0: And letting them make mistakes, like you said. So being like, mm, probably not how I would do it, but that's okay. Like, do it. And maybe either they'll be right, which is great. They're on the ground. They're looking at it day to day. Or yeah. they'll be wrong and they learn from it. But they know that they have your trust to try yes. things that maybe wouldn't be the way that you would do.
1: That. Yes. My motto is Fail fast let's try it. Let's fail fast. And I'm also all about test and learn. So the tech industry does have that down is this whole agile development, right? Test and learn, test and learn. And so when you do fail, you don't do it at scale, you know, but you do it in a way in which you're like, let's course correct. And then let's scale it to the next level. Mentorship is not easy. Honestly, leading and mentoring and coaching is my full-time job.
0: Yeah, it's funny because I think at a personal level, I think I still haven't gotten to the point as an individual where that's actually where I get satisfaction. It's weird. Like I should, right? And I feel like I'm supposed to, but like I still get a lot of satisfaction in the doing. Maybe I'll never be cut out for it. I don't know.
1: No, it's that is a hard transition, Connor. I think it's a hard one for all of us, especially if you have succeeded in your career and you're good at something, then doing feels good. It feels really good, and so that's the other thing is you have to be kind of selfless and let go.
0: Well, you have to get satisfaction from others' accomplishments, right?
1: Well, you know what? When I first joined a board, that was the ultimate test because I was a sitting CEO when I joined the Express board, and I found the first meeting—I was literally sitting on my hands. I'm like, Winnie, you are not an executive at this company. You're not part of the management team. You are not to tell them what to do or how to do it on that front, right? You are actually your boss are the shareholders. And so that mental switch, and I have a hard time. My Dollar Street board meetings, there's nothing I love more than to talk about merchandising and operations, and ask questions, and it's like, no, pull back. Because the doing is fun, Connor. It is fun. That's That's why I love retail. I'm like, oh, let's talk about that. And I'm like, no, Winnie, go back here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I've gotten to be on the boards of our own companies. But I think the only independent role I had, or the first one I had was with Nest, So just sold for a couple hundred million, which is great. The candles, right? So you mentioned candles, couldn't smell them during the pandemic. And it's a very different position to be in. So let's do one more kind of question and then we'll do like a fun end of show question. So you mentioned private equity there. And I think that's a part of the business that I think a lot of people don't have visibility into, right, which is that almost all of these companies of any size and scale have significant shareholders that are not involved in the business every day, whether it's private equity shareholders or it's public shareholders, right? You have this other class of people that, you know, just don't get talked about a lot. And I think in the case of forever 21, right? That's the spark group, which again is another group that I don't think most people know about. I mean, every iconic brand of my youth, it's like Aeropostale, Reebok, lucky brand, you guys, dozens of others. What is their kind of thesis? Because I think it's quite an interesting and unique approach. Yeah, talk to me about that. Then how do you kind of interact with them?
1: Spark is a really interesting model. Um, So Spark's a private company and it's jointly owned by Jamie Salter of Authentic Brands Group, which is a private company that has PE investors, as well as Simon Property Group and David Simon specifically who is the CEO and chair of a public company. And so Spark is effectively just a private company that's independent. And the thesis behind Spark is that while Authentic Brands owns the IP for all of the brands within Spark, that Spark actually operates the retail and the customer-facing direct to consumer aspect, as well as the wholesale operations of these brands. Honestly, it means in practice that we're all stewards of these brands and that within Spark, the way that I view Spark is a little bit like my old company, Louis Vuitton, Moat Hennessy Group, okay? Single company entity is LVMH, but it's a portfolio of lots of different brands from Louis Vuitton to Celine to... Honestly, they own so many brands. Tippin,
0: Benefit, Dior. Sephora. Yeah. You
1: got it. You got it. So it's not so different from that in terms of how those brands interact with one another. At Spark, there's a concerted effort to really leverage any like centers of excellence. So we have a center of excellence when it comes to technology, to leverage best practices when it comes to things like digital marketing. And then beyond that, really, it is the brand CEOs driving the individual mandates of their brands because Forever 21 is one of those brands. Brooks Brothers is another. We're quite different. We serve very different customers and very different lifestyles. And so the brand CEOs really are the ultimate stewards of how that brand interacts with its customers, both in stores as well as online. And if there's a wholesale component, the wholesale piece as well. And then Spark is kind of the way that creates, you know, this synergy between the brands, any synergy that can be shared, any best practice that can be shared. And it's the first time that I've been able to be part of something where, because LVMH, each of those brands actually runs quite separately. Spark, actually, we do meet once a week as brand CEOs. And what's nice about that is you actually have a group of colleagues where you get to compare notes. Aeropostal, how was traffic? What are you seeing in terms of trend? What type of leverage could we get out of sharing a a common CRM platform? So those are the types of things that we're able to share, which has been actually really nice. It's the first time I've had that because when I was with Paper Source, I had amazing private equity backers, but it was me. And I didn't quite have that community that Spark can offer.
0: I mean, it's got to be a lot of shared learnings across those brands because in a lot of ways, you're going through, I think consistent experiences right yes. because a lot of these brands are brands that were once very prominent and now are going through a resurgence exactly. and so that is a unique shared experience that you guys can all talk about
1: absolutely i also think the wild ride of retail is yeah. one that it's nice to have friends and companions and compadres like i said during the pandemic just having this group of ceos that i got to talk to on a weekly basis was amazing. And there were public company CEOs. They were private. They were small. They were big. They were in multiple different types of retail sectors. And just having them was huge. And so I would say that's one of the biggest benefits of being part of Spark.
0: Well, let's do one fun end to show question because I think I've already used up all of my time. So you talked about not this image of perfection, not showing a lot of weaknesses. I'm curious if you had a weakness for one type of food. What would it be? What's the thing that's hard for me? I'd say warm chocolate chip cookies with a scoop of ice cream. I mean, that's the pinnacle for me.
1: It's hard for me to choose one food, Connor. I'm an idiot. <laughs> it is difficult. I grew up in the Southeast in Tennessee. Okay. I love everything Southern and I'm Korean. So I love everything Korean. Now I live in the Midwest, which is a home of deep dish pizza. And I never met a pizza I didn't like. <laughs> really hard for me to choose a food. But I have to say, I literally sometimes just sit and fantasize about ice cream, which is weird. But like, I <laughs> love ice cream. I love eating it. I love how it's cold in my mouth. I think it's the perfect concentration of flavor, especially something like Jenny's ice cream. Oh, yeah. Like really fresh ingredients. I'll never deny you a a, Haagen-Dazs, forget about it. Like if I'm just- (laughs) That is it. And it makes me happy. It makes me happy thinking about it. Thus, I cannot really have it around. Um, (laughs) I love it. So
0: I've got a great ice cream story. So my wife's mother- also loves ice cream, right? She's got a sweet tooth and she's in very good shape. She runs marathons all the time. She's done an Ironman, very healthy, per- overly healthy person. So one day when we first started dating, we went to get some ice cream out of the fridge and it was chocolate chip cookie dough ice cream. And I opened it up and I'm like, what's going mm-hmm. on? It was all pilled. It was like rolled up and it was only Videla, And she had gone through and eaten every piece of cookie dough. Oh,
1: oh my God. <laughs> Gosh, that's just wrong.
0: So wrong. Put <laughs> that,
1: that is just wrong. And then for the That's bad ice cream etiquette.
0: <laughs> Terrible that's ice cream Bad
1: ice cream etiquette.
0: Too funny. Well, I really appreciate you taking out the time, Winnie. This is awesome. And well, uh, You're you know...
1: so much fun to talk to, Connor. I really <laughs> enjoyed it. You're the best. Be a friend, tell a friend, and
0: subscribe. Earned by Creator IQ. Creator IQ is your all-in-one solution to grow, manage, scale, and measure your influencer marketing program. Ready to
1: unlock the power of the creator economy? Get started with a demo today at CreatorIQ.com.